Welcome to Note Up number 98. We have a Docker show for you today, and we have a couple of Docker fanatics with us. We've got Will Blankenship and Tony Pujals. So I'm going to introduce them first, and then we'll talk about how we're going to structure this show to find out about the state of Docker and Docker best practices. So, Will, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I work for a company called NodeSource with Rod. I maintain the Docker images there for the Node community, shaving a lot of the yaks around getting Node.js into Docker and maintaining that for production. Shave those yaks so you don't have to. And I also contribute to the official IOJS and Node.js Docker images, albeit not as much as I like, but working on that. And that's me. And Tony, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, so I'm a director of cloud engineering at Upcelerator. I'm also a, a member of the Node Foundation Evangelism Working Group. And I'm uh, an organizer host for uh, Baynode, the world's third largest Node meetup. We're here in Mountain View and a uh, little bit over 2,000 members at this point. But anyone who knows me knows that as much as I love Node, I love Docker. So happy to join the show. That's great. Well, hopefully we can get into some meaty discussions about Docker. And I'm Rod Vag. I uh, work with NodeSource. I also work on Node Core and occasionally host NodeUp. Today's show is sponsored by DigitalOcean and Andyet. We'll hear more about them during the show. First part of this show, we're going to talk about the state of Docker and the current evolving Docker philosophy. Where are we at with Docker, basically, and what's the maturity status of Docker? We're going to then move into talking about Docker in production and Docker architectures that can be used. So what's the ideal way to use Docker? And then lastly, we'll talk a bit of blue sky about the future of Docker, what features are coming up, and what the evolving best practices are that we're seeing actually go out into the ecosystem and you know what can we expect in our companies in the next five years with Docker. So let's get into it with talking about the state of Docker and state of Docker philosophy. So when Docker first came out and really got big, my perception was Docker all the things. We've got to put everything in Docker and you know that it just turned into a bit of a joke where you know everything would go into a Docker container. Are we still at that phase or have we matured a little bit? Maybe Tony, you can start us off on this discussion here. What's your thoughts about this? Well, so I'm coming from a perspective where I absolutely agree with that. Docker all the things. We're going to only see more and more adoption of Docker over the next few years. I think the only thing that holding it back is like, you know, it's, it's that same transition, that same shift to virtualization. It's a powerful, compelling technology, but it takes time for people to get used to bringing that into their workflow, into their development practices. Some of the questions that still need to be answered out there, things that have been evolving in the ecosystem around orchestration and other areas that, you know, there are questions that still need to be addressed, but it's going to be exciting to talk about it today, uh, how Docker is going to help help your development team, not just your DevOps team. Will, do you have a, a different take on that, or is it you the same? Actually, it's pretty much the same. We're at a point now where, like, if you had asked me a year ago, I would have been kind of hesitant to recommend for any like serious company to take Docker towards production. We're still having some issues along the lines of like garbage collection and things like that, where your CI, CD servers fill up their hard disks, etc. Sometimes even your production servers. For the most part, like I would agree. Yeah, Docker is just about ready for production. We have a lot of really cool tools coming out to help the production use case. Docker Swarm, Docker Machine, they're pretty magical, especially when you put Docker Compose on top. And I think we have a lot of power that we're opening up to the enterprise when we do this. When I started playing with Docker, and, and I did a little bit of Docker all the things, I ended up winding back most of that work because I was finding that the complexity of the architectures for the simple use cases just weren't worth it. So 
putting simple services into a Docker container that, you know, not then they were part of a complex, large deployment. They were just a simple deployment that I had, maybe one process. And in the end, it was like, there's just, there's too many moving parts here. There's too many parts of the workflow. And it was just easier to pull it out again, much more simple. Are you guys saying that, that Docker is, what, what is the niche for Docker in terms of the kinds of deployments where it's worthwhile? Or are you actually saying that, you can imagine that any kind of deployment needs Docker. Is that what you're saying? Because well, I'm for, still uh, Docker everything. So for for example, like with Docker development um, is something I've been championing or championing re recently. And one of the benefits there is that you take a lot of your services that you would normally depend on like setting up locally and like whether it be Redis or Nginx or Elasticsearch, you put them into Docker containers and you spin them up inside of containers alongside of your application every time you need them. The problem with this workflow, and it's kind of things that you'll have to shave these yaks up front before you take it to production, but they're like production thinking that you're going to have to think of up front, which is like what happens when the database isn't there because that's a totally plausible thing to happen when you're putting things inside of Docker. So you spin your scripts up and your containers start up side by side, but you know the database doesn't start up at the same time. So maybe the database comes up a few seconds afterwards, but in the meantime, your node script is crashed. So that, like, it requires that thinking up front, but you're just taking on that up front as opposed to having to worry about that once you complete your application and you go to put it out into production. So it's just thinking of that stuff up front. Um, so yeah, there are those pain points and everybody's going to hit those pain points, but they're pain points that I think you'll be hitting at any point during development. It's just you're tackling them earlier on, if that makes sense. And I totally agree with that too, Will. That was part of the value proposition that initially attracted me to Docker. Even if you take a fairly static development environment, a team that's not really experimenting with a lot of different things, you know, but they've been developing, for example, with MySQL. You know, we've all gone to these teams. You've joined companies where you, know, you take a day or two days and follow all the in instructions on the wiki or whatever to get your development environment set up. And that's a real pain. But, but then start thinking that you want to experiment with, uh, you know, you're testing new features. You need a new version of Node. Okay, so I'll install NVM so I can switch back and forth between Node. But you also want to experiment with MongoDB, but maybe you need a different version of MongoDB. And you don't want to have to share all of these setup instructions with the rest of your team as you start sharing the prototype or, you know, you submit a pull request for somebody to evaluate a feature on a different branch. And with Docker, it's a very simple model for declaring what that runtime environment and that orchestrated runtime environment should look like. So dependency management, being able to specify it's this version of Node and this version of Mongo or this version of Redis or whatever for this particular test. And an extremely simple model. So from a developer perspective, that adds a lot. The ability not to have to manage all the dependencies on your particular laptop and then also have to create all these uh, other environments and match those dependencies, whether it's integration environment or your QA environment, you know, whatever. Yeah, I totally agree. Actually, that's one of the things I was just talking to a team here in New York. And one of the things they accomplished was it came out of a talk that I was giving at Empire Node. And it's that if you take your Docker Compose script, a script that you use to tie together, Docker Compose is a tool that ties together and orchestrates containers for you. If you take that and you check that into your GitHub repository, basically what that's become is the equivalent of your package.json for the services that your application depends on. It's going to specify the version of MySQL that's necessary, the version of Redis that's necessary, and then it isolates that to that project as opposed to having a global scope that you're sharing across your development environment for all of your projects. So if you have two applications, uh, this team specifically, they had a 
bunch of services that they were developing. They kind of embraced a microservice architecture. And they had a bunch of services they were developing. But some of the services used different versions of these like dependent services, like different versions of Redis or different versions of Elasticsearch. And they were constantly switching back and forth between these during code reviews. Um, so when they made the switch over to Docker, the phrase like works on my machine like ceased to exist and during these code reviews, right? When it became a pleasant thing to review code because it was no longer trying to set up the exact like version of stuff that was going to be mirrored in production. Everything was captured as code in this repository. And it's a fantastic it, it, experience. Exactly. That, that's really awesome uh, from the submitting a pull request perspective where you, you don't have to provide the instructions for somebody to set up the environment to be able to test a particular feature. They're just going to run Docker Compose. And what's really awesome about that, it's not just a question of, hey, this is my orchestrated environment, so all my dependencies are all going to load up. It, it provides the benefit of even injecting that information into the environments that depend on those services. So it will update the host file. It's going to update the uh, environment so that you're able to connect to your Mongo server or whatever it is based on updated environment variables that have been set up for you by Docker. It seems to me that part of the, the change that's happened in the uh, year or two that this has been evolving has been an improvement in the, the tooling or the, the structuring of these things. And I'm wondering if we could step back a bit and look at the components here. Maybe, Will, you could start this off and describe to us, you know, just pretend that you, the, the, the listeners have not had any exposure to Docker. They know maybe vaguely what Docker is, the containerization thing. Tell us about the basics with Docker files and Docker Compose and anything else around there that an average Docker setup would be using these days. So we're going to start with the Docker file. And you start with your Docker file, and a Docker file is a step-by-step -step script that constructs what's called a Docker image. It allows you to take all of your source code for your application, bake it inside of a Docker image, and basically specifies what system dependencies need to be present, what configuration steps need to be taken, like whether you're running npm install or npm post install, etc., to get your application in a stable state so that it can run when the container starts. Then from that, you'll have the actual Docker runtime, which you'll use to actually build the image itself, and you'll use that to run the image, etc. Then we have some tool sets that can support that process. We have something called Docker Compose, and Docker Compose takes all of your Docker images, it allows you to specify them in a YAML file, so you can specify like images that you've built yourself with Docker files or images that exist out on the public Docker registry, and it ties them all together and allows them to spin up all with one command and automatically, like Tony was talking about, sets up environment variables for you, does DNS resolution for you if you have it configured properly so that you can ping other containers and it'll resolve to the IP address of that container, stuff like that. And then when you pair Docker Compose and the Docker Engine with two new like tools that are coming out, well, they're actually production ready at this point, or Merck production ready is Docker Machine and Docker Swarm. And Docker Machine allows you to provision a remote host somewhere in the world, whether it be on Amazon's cloud or Google's cloud. You specify the cloud you're provisioning to, some parameters to like the size of the cloud instance that you're provisioning, and it'll spin up a Docker-ready instance on that server. You use Swarm to create a cluster of these instances, and then you can use Docker Compose to deploy to this cluster of instances. And instead of dealing with them on a host-by-host -host basis, you're dealing with it as like a pool of resources. Those are the tools, like the main tools that you'd be using, I wouldn't say right out the door, but in the first like six months of playing around with Docker. Anything to add to it? Yeah, you know, Rod, you were mentioning early on, you're wondering if it was worth the pain, and probably because Docker you know, was developed around Linux initially, um, you know, there was pain in working with it, for example, on your Mac. 
or on Windows, you know, the whole boot to Docker experience. But machine has changed all that. So it's a pluggable architecture. It lets you provision a machine anywhere the same way. You provide whatever extra parameterizations that's specific, like, you know, credentials for, you know, your backend cloud provider. But it works great. And Will, you had mentioned using a Docker file to build your image. And I just wanted to point out for those who don't know that I, I like to use the analogy that uh, you can think of an image like a class in object-oriented programming and your container is basically the instance of your class. So, you know, you, you use a Docker file to build an image, you push an image to a registry, you know, to some repository. And then when you spin up, your containers are basically running instances of that image. And there's one other component in the ecosystem. Well, there's a little bit more. Uh, I wanted to mention Docker Swarm, which is the clustering uh, technology for uh, Docker. And that also has a pluggable architecture. So, for example, we're going down a path here where we're going to be leveraging Docker Swarm with Mesos as the compute resource scheduler for our clusters. It's an exciting ecosystem. Yeah, it sounds very interesting. I guess there's also a maturing ecosystem around Docker as well. So we have companies that are putting their resources behind it, like Google with Kubernetes. What are some of the more mature products that people are actually using? Are people using CoreOS, for example? What, what, what's, what's shaping up to be the current best practice in terms of tooling? Interesting, because, Will, I think you and I talked about that a little while ago when I asked you maybe half a year ago. Probably the, the hardest questions to answer around Docker has been best practices around people with large deployments and large orchestration requirements. And, yeah, you touched on Kubernetes, and there's some competing solutions in that area, Kubernetes being one for orchestration, Mesos with, with Marathon, for example, being a, another type of orchestration strategy. From my perspective, what you use on the, uh, you know, whether it's CoreOS or some other technology for hosting your container environment, I think that's a decision that you make based on where you want your, your data center to be, where you want your cluster to be, and, and which vendor is going to provide you the right pricing and the right solution. But Docker is fairly agnostic to that. I mean, that's the whole idea of uh, using Docker as a way of containing your applications, right? It's a way of specifying what is the runtime environment for a process to run. I agree with everything Tony just said. And I wanted to add that choosing upfront, if, depending on the size of where you're at, kind of influences this conversation. So if you're just starting up and you've got like a handful of services that you're wanting to deploy, looking at something like Kubernetes or one of those services, that's taking on a lot of technical debt and locking yourself into a framework really early. When in reality, if you just took uh, the Docker tools itself and just deployed with those, it gives you a lot of flexibility out the door. I was talking to a team here yesterday at a node school. They were deploying to or Docker and staging, and then production was Heroku. And there was some sort of outage and their Heroku instances. So they were going to be down for about a half a day. And some guy kind of punted Docker into production over in Amazon's cloud, just taking the Docker instances using Docker machine, pushing it out there. And it saved the day. And it was just the ability of being agnostic of where they were deploying. They just took the stuff that they were already using in staging and see in their continuous integration, continuous deployment servers. And they just pushed it out into production. And it allowed them to do that and save the day. You just remind me of one of the best things about Docker, I think, which is that the holy grail of being able to have development environments and your entire deployment pipeline you know, match as closely as possible your production environment. And Docker brings us so much further towards that goal. For relatively simple applications, uh, Docker allows your development environment to absolutely match your production environment. 
the conversation is always about Docker and production. And when we talk about Docker and production, I think that we lose a big part of the conversation, which is Docker and development. And I think we have a lot more wins in Docker with Docker and development than Docker and production. Docker and production is just kind of a simplification process of how we handle our services. But in development, what we're doing with Docker is we're creating the script that says how our services need to be deployed. And the script actually is code that can be used to generate a stable reference environment that we all develop against. We pick that up and we handle it or like hand it to the operation team they have a reference thing that they can review and when there are things that don't jive with the way they do things they can tweak it and update it and it opens up a bi-directional communication between the developers and the operations and how this thing's going to be deployed and how it's going to be maintained and then operations can carry that all the way to production use those same tools all the way into production so the developers the operations team and the actual production all the way through that it's all the same container. It's all the same image. We're just testing it and doing things on top of it, but it's just one pipeline. And that's a very beautiful realization of where we kind of should be at in 2016. Let's move on to our uh, next section. But before we do that, we're going to hear from our first sponsor. DigitalOcean is the best place to get your application off the ground quickly and the easiest to scale when you find success. Start with the pre-configured Node.js one-click to get up and running in 55 seconds, or build the exact infrastructure you need with root access to servers running 100% SSDs in state-of-the-art data centers around the world. Scale your infrastructure using advanced features like floating IPs for high availability, private networking, and API access for automated deployments. DigitalOcean is the fastest-growing cloud infrastructure provider because it's built for developers and laser focused on its mission to create simple and elegant solutions for developers and teams. Visit digitalocean.com and use the promo code NOTEUP on the billing page for a $10 credit to get started today. Let's move on to part two now and talk about Docker in production and Docker architectures, and specifically Docker with Node, because I don't think we've even mentioned Node yet, even though this is a Node podcast. Let's start off with the Node part. Maybe, Will, you can start us off here and talk talk to us about the state of Docker with Node, specifically starting with how people can use Docker with Node, because I think you two are both involved in the, the Docker working group in Node Core. Tell us what is available for people with Docker and Node. So if you're starting off and you're using Docker, the Docker working group, we have generated some fantastic images that you absolutely should be using. When you take that towards uh, production, the reality is if you're not running the latest version of Node, which a lot of large companies aren't, simply because updating an entire code base to the most recent version every time a patch is released isn't the simplest of tasks. A lot of them are running three, four, five, six versions back on point releases and sometimes even major releases. The reality is those aren't going to be supported by the official images, which is why a node source, one of those tasks I took on was building out a set of, I think we're about 450 images now, which contain a image for each point release that's actively maintained. So the base operating system is still receiving those updates. Sorry, Will, I know that there are other ways you can run Docker with Node, like Michael Hart, for instance, maintains an Alpine Linux Docker image. Can you tell us about what else is available out there and why you might choose alternatives? One of the big things, and this will be something we bring up again later in the show, when you build a Docker image, you're not just taking on the responsibility of the application itself. Like we were saying earlier with the conversation between the developers and the operations, that's possible because the app that you're deploying inside of this Docker container has all of the system dependencies baked in. 
So all the shared libraries, et cetera, that exist in the global space in Linux, they're baked into that image. So when you ship a Docker image, you're not just shipping your code and you're not just shipping the modules that NPM's installing for you. You're actually shipping system dependencies. And that's a big risk that you're taking on, right? Especially if you're doing mission-critical application development, shipping all of those that may not be something that you want to do. So something like Alpine Linux, where it's a smaller operating system with less attack surface, that might be something we're baking it in, starting with statically compiled node, if you want to take on that challenge. Having a statically compiled node with absolutely no dependency management at the operating system layer, and it's just node, your code, and what NPM is installing for you. That's something you could take on too. Tony, do you have anything to add to that? We'll touch on a point that I love, the idea that your, your services, your, your, the various application components are completely self-contained. It's, it's like the benefit of a virtual machine, but without the heavyweight aspects of a virtual machine. You don't have to ship around this image that carries around all the bits for the operating system that it's going to run on. It, it doesn't have to boot up. It's a self-contained, isolated process that behaves like a, a virtual machine, but extremely lightweight and easy to work with. It's, it's a great model. And I totally agree with that, but like at the point that's also its curse, and this is mostly just like me talking from the bottom of the rabbit hole that I'm standing in, but the rationale behind the images that I've built were like when you ship all of that, if you're in a position where you can't upgrade your version of Node and the image that you have has like, let's say shell shock happens for one of the dependencies in your image, right? If you're tracking like the major release or the uh, like official Docker images, you're either forced to upgrade your version of Node and your code base to track the release that just was released with the patched version, or you just accept the fact that your image has this security vulnerability baked into it, right? Or you can build like the security patch as a layer on top of that and ship your new image into production. Tracking the images that I've been building, I, I've been pushing out regular updates to the base operating system that pulls in updates to all the packages so that it's always at its latest. And, it's a little overkill for anybody who's just doing normal application development on the weekend and shipping like their personal projects out to the web. But for like larger companies, it's something that we don't have a good solution for, but we're trying. And this is our best effort at the moment. So, so just to be clear, if you do, it's Docker, uh, is it Docker? Oh, I can't remember the command line now. Like Docker update node, is it? To pull down the node image and then Docker run node. When you get when you do the default just node, you're actually pulling down the ones from the working group that you you two are involved in, don't you? That that's the official official Docker images for Node are actually maintained by the Node project and your working group. That's, that's correct, right. isn't it? Yeah, Docker pull Node would pull the latest. Memory is failing me if it's Node or Node.js. But yes, you're correct. Pull. That's it. It, it, I think it's it is Node. And yeah, it's Node, and, and yeah, of course you can do that interactively at the command line, but you know, realistically, you'll be doing that in your Docker file. You've got the ability to specify specifically which node you want to pull based on a tag. Well, let's move on to talking about Docker in production. Will, you made some interesting notes about testing and CI, CD. Do you want to tell us a bit about where Docker comes into the picture there and how it can best be used and, and how it improves things over the current state of, of CI, CD? Yeah, this is actually the point that I'm like, the most excited about right now and the rabbit hole that I'm in with Docker. And it's the ability for like the developers to generate an image that they use for development, that stable reference environment that we were referencing earlier, right? Or referring to earlier, that stable reference environment. They hand that off to the continuous integration and continuous deployment service, right? And <clears throat> that Docker file that they're building against that's generating that environment, that's going to be run and built in the continuous integration environment. 
and what's going to happen there is, is it going to build an actual artifact? That is an artifact that can be held onto and stored for all of eternity. And that artifact is going to contain the entire environment necessary to run your application. And what's really exciting about that and different than most artifact generation is that this artifact is layered so that every command inside of the Docker file is building a layer. And what this means is you can take that Docker image, that layered artifact, and you can build layers on top of that. And those layers, they can be your integration tests. They can be your unit tests, right? And this is like a thought, like mental mind game that I've gone through and I've I developed a tool called Dante as kind of an example of how this like might work. And you can see that under my GitHub repository, wblankenship slash Dante. And the general gist of what happens is you build the image, the layers are built on top of this. And these layers, they're going to be your integration test or your unit test. And they could be something as simple as NPM test, or they could be like a full test suite that you're using inside of your company and running them in their layers. And the only thing that's required is if those unit tests complete, they're going to generate a layer successfully. If they fail, they're going to prevent the layer from being built. If the layer can't be built, you know there's something wrong with the image. If it can successfully build all the like all the layers necessary to run your tests, you know that the image that you're building off of is stable enough and has a stable enough environment to run all the things you're testing for. So then, once you've like gotten that like check mark, that seal of approval that yes, this is a this isn't a valid state, you can throw away all of those tests, and then you can ship the actual artifact, the entire environment, out to production, and then. Let's say you take those tests and the artifact itself, you store them for later use. And then let's say six months later, something happens in production and there's a problem. You now have an artifact that you can go back to and you can look at, okay, why did these tests pass and how did this get through? And you have that nice reference environment again that you've stored and you can compare it. And this is something that I don't think we've ever realized before. I mean, that's a pretty exciting place to be at. How difficult is that post debugging process? Like if I have an artifact that seems to have been okay, but something else, something's failed, and I want to dig into that. Is that a complex process, or is it is it pretty trivial with if you've got an image? So that entirely depends on where you're storing said artifact. If you have like a private registry or something that you're setting up and you're storing them to it, that's just matching the SHA sum. So your each image has a unique SHA or SHA sum that it generates. You can go and reference the artifact that way. But yeah, it's entirely dependent on how you're storing them. But once you have the artifact that you've retrieved from storage, that's as simple as running Docker run, creating a container from the image, dropping down into the command line, and then interacting with it and seeing, like, why did this pass? Tony, I bet you're doing some interesting things with CICD and Docker. What, what's some of the interesting things you can tell us about with, with that workflow? In the past year, I, I worked with a company called CodeFresh, CodeFresh.io. And what's interesting is that they're leveraging Docker to build out an entire continuous delivery platform. CICD and the goal is to be able to help teams get their all of the pieces that they need out into the production environment. But based on the Docker APIs for composing and building these applications, and one of the cool things that they did was to build a hook into GitHub so that you know you can actually click on any branch, any pull request, and spin up an entire environment for testing. The stuff, of course, can be done automatically via webhooks. The whole idea of being able to leverage Docker Compose to be able to to define what makes up an environment for running tests, it's a very powerful feature, very compelling for a development team. My particular fascination with Docker tends to be in a different area, but I I, I definitely don't want to discount the value of what Docker brings to the table for continuous integration. We're actually seeing a lot of unifying around Docker with CI these days. Even Travis is starting to standardize on Docker, aren't they? And 
a lot of the other services are basically based around Docker, except when they need to move off Linux. Is, is that right? I, I think, does anyone know what the status of Travis is with, with Docker? I, know, I think they were just using plain containers before and now they're trying to standardize on Docker. Is that sound right? Yeah. At least the last time I looked at Travis, you know, it was its own specific, you know, configuration environment. So you'd set up your hooks for what happens when you're installing stuff. And it wasn't based around Docker APIs and it wouldn't recognize a, a Docker Compose file. So I haven't looked at Travis since then. I'm not sure what the current state is. I think the, um, in your configuration, you can actually say, do this in a lightweight container, which I think might, might use Docker. Anyway, that's probably beside the point. Let's move on to something more interesting. So, Tony, you're interested in microservice architectures with Docker, and I think this is probably, if you're, if you're going down the microservices path, it seems to me like if you're not doing it with Docker or some other containerized service, like I don't really know if there's anything out there that's really competing with Docker yet in terms of containers, but if you're not doing it with containers, then you're probably doing it wrong. Do you want to tell us a bit about microservice architectures with Docker? Yeah, okay. So see, this is where this is so fascinating to me. Um, to me, this whole conversation about microservices, uh, microservice, you know, people, you know, is microservice SOA? Well, yeah, it's a, it's a form of service-oriented architecture, but the idea is that it's, it's SOA without all the heavyweight baggage that we mentally associate with SOA, you know, the WS standards and uh, SOAP, WSDL, all that kind of stuff. But microservices definitely implies lightweight, and that involves lightweight processes, so it goes hand-in-hand hand with Docker. I'd argue that today when we talk about microservices, we really are talking about containerized environments. I don't think, I mean, you can talk about building a microservice, meaning I just built a little lightweight server, but it's really not, not microservice if, you don't, if you're not using containers. So this is the part that gets me excited. Node and Docker, I mean, it's a match made in heaven. I mean, with the idea of running a high-performance, lightweight network servers and being able to deploy them into high-performance, lightweight, isolated operating environments, that's what enables and makes practical building a, building a microservice architecture. If you think about it, this whole trend towards microservice architecture, the idea in the past, you know, why did we have monolithic architecture? What was that about? Well, it was, e it was easier. Uh, and there's benefits. But why was it easier? Well, that's probably because the entire process, the deployment process, building your, your, your build pipeline, your staging environments, the maintenance, it's always been a fairly significant burden historically. So you tend to amortize the cost of that by having more epic, epic cycles, epic releases, and you focus on, on, on trying to integrate all the components into a, a large code base that can be tested and integrated and then deployed as a single unit into you know, your QA environment, your UAT environment, or staging or pre-production environment or pushed off to production. You wouldn't think about breaking that apart and having these little tiny releases to add a new feature. It wasn't worth the energy. It wasn't worth the, worth the cost and the time. And things started getting better, you know, as technology improved, virtualization, Vagrant, Chef, Puffet, all these tools that the DevOps community was able to embrace to kind of make this process of deploying things out into production easier. Still, that was hard. And if things are hard, if it's hard to provision and maintain your environments and move applications through the pipeline, you're going to continue with these larger releases, these more epic and, and monolithic type of applications. When you are able to leverage a technology like Docker, you suddenly have a practical way of being able to spin up services on demand in an elastic environment and 
that are lightweight, that are cheap, that are easy to declare, easy to deploy, and very cost efficient in terms of your resources. So, you know, early in the show, we were talking about the benefits of development teams, but we can also say this is a benefit that's realistically, if you can take advantage of this in your production environment, if you can start thinking about how to build your, your, your application as a set of communicating services, and you've got a technology for efficiently defining and deploying them, you're going to be able to start taking advantage of that. That's what Docker brings to the table. It makes the process of running server processes and isolated compute environments easy to define, manage, deploy, and it's efficient. And it goes great with Node. So there's two parts of that that are probably worth covering in more detail. And one is orchestration, because that's really one of the biggest biggest difficulties with microservices. But what is the status of orchestration? And the other other one I have is service discovery and communication. How are these things done in a way that doesn't complicate things or make things brittle? So let's yeah. start with orchestration. Okay, so that's a good point. We talk about benefits of microservice architecture for development teams in terms of breaking apart these monoliths and, and allowing teams to focus on a smaller chunk of the problem and own that problem and independently evolve it, independently deploy it. But, but the reality is the monolithic model is very easy to understand in terms of scaling, right? You just make copies of it, put it behind a, a load balancer. And you touched on a very important point, which is in a distributed environment, the loss of communicating distributed processes, well... Distributed architecture brings its own set of problems, its own set of challenges. It becomes very important at that point to, to actually think about how you deal with service discovery, service registration discovery in an environment. How do you deal with failover? What are your, what are your strategies for messaging among all of these services? And those sets of challenges, not necessarily what a lot of the teams that were comfortable with when they were building the monolithic applications not necessarily comfortable dealing with this. So you've seen the community, you've seen, for example, Google coming up with Kubernetes, a platform for making it easier to build orchestrated services. You've seen Docker come up with a standard API as far as the, the Docker ecosystem around Swarm. So the ability to look at your, your cluster as a single Docker machine and be able to specify the attributes that would allow it to schedule a container for running a process. But you're going to have to bring other things into the mix. So you're going to have to get comfortable with, okay, so I need some kind of distributed key value service like, like console. You're going to have to become comfortable with the idea of handling environments where obviously the more processes you have, the greater the potential for network partitions to impact your application. You know, good old cap theorem coming to coming into play here. And with that, you're you're going to have to develop a much more sophisticated monitoring strategy, a much more sophisticated log collation strategy. And you know, you're going to have to have a real dedication to automation. So Docker doesn't make distributed architecture easy. It just makes it a little more practical and a little more cost effective. What are the alternatives when people are looking at orchestration, for example? We've, we've talked about Kubernetes. Is Swarm a Kubernetes style thing or is that like what are, what are the categories here and what are the products that we could be looking at so as tony said swarm is designed to be pluggable and you can swap it out with backends right and i believe tony is working like heavily in that area but like with swarm if you're just like a smaller company with just a couple of services like handful like 
in the two digits. Swarm should be pretty good for your day-to-day, right? But once you start scaling, you start reaching a serious scale, the kind of scale that Tony was just talking about, you're going to need to start looking into other solutions, the ones that he was already talking about. But for the smaller teams, like the cool thing with Swarm is like you can back into, he was talking about console, and you can back end Swarm itself with console and with etcd, etc. And when you do that, your applications, and you were talking about discoverability, applications become addressable by name. So DNS resolution works, you can ping the name of a container and it'll resolve to the IP address regardless of where that's existing. So for example, if you use Docker machine, when you provision two machines, one in Google Cloud and the other in Amazon, and then you deploy a console instance, you do what's called an overlay network, which is, this is a series of like three commands. That sounds like super intricate, but it's like three commands. And then you spin up two containers. It doesn't matter where those containers are, but you're able to ping them by name and it'll do a DNS resolution. You can treat them just like they were on the same machine for the most part. So there's a lot of really awesome opportunity here. Tell us about Mesos. Mesos? Tony, you're using this one? What's, what's the, why have you chosen that over alternatives? So, so Mesos, you can think of it as a, a cluster manager, but Mesos is, a, is an incredible technology that's been proved to scale to tens of thousands of nodes. It was incubated at uh, Berkeley. Twitter, obviously uh, famous for adopting it, and a ton of other companies like you know Airbnb, and pretty much anybody that is looking at being able to leverage a data center and the compute resources, such as you know CPU, storage, whatever, but as resources that can be scheduled for use in a way that allows you to use your resources as efficiently as possible and abstract you away from the really challenging details of trying to figure out how to provision a resource and, and monitor that resource. You get to go through the Mesos layer. And again, so Mesos has worked really well in production for companies at, at huge scale. So as Will mentioned, you can use Swarm out of the box, but have the confidence to know that because of a pluggable architecture, you can go through the Swarm API and, and back it with Mesos when you need to try and kind of uh, reach the scale where you're at thousands and tens of thousands of nodes. And what about messaging protocols? What are people using these days? Are we, are we building mini HTTP services? Are we using lightweight message queuing systems? What, what, what's the best practice out there these days, or is it really mixed? Well, I, you know, there's definitely a mix, but of course, you know, when you're looking at uh, large distributed systems, you're generally going to have to bring in some kind of messaging technology into the mix. It's not necessarily point-to-point HTTP. So you may be using Kafka, you may be using RabbitMQ, but you're generally going to add some kind of messaging infrastructure into your into your distributed application. What about you, Will? What are you seeing out there in terms of technology that people are using? Yeah, I, yeah, I mirror exactly what Tony said. I've seen people using RabbitMQ, et cetera. I don't think I have anything to add in that segment. Let's move on to... Um, we had a little note in here about some security concerns. I know there have been security concerns with, with Docker in the past, but also there's security considerations in terms of Docker best practices. Doc, um, so, Will, do you want to lead us into that discussion quickly and what, what are the things that people need to be aware of when deploying with Docker and not just ignoring? Sure. Actually, Tony said something awesome earlier, and I just wanted to like reiterate that. When it comes to Docker security, for the most part, it's the same as Linux security. Simple things like running AppArmor, et cetera, and like your security team should be pretty like up-to-date on what's going on in the Linux world if you're going to be maintaining a Docker system in production. But on top of that, the reality of, which we hinted at earlier in 
the show, which is when you're deploying a Docker image, most Docker images, they're not just your application. You're taking on the responsibility of maintaining an entire operating system minus the kernel. There's a lot of responsibility in there. So keeping up to date with like the CVEs and security exploits that exist for that operating system, like that's extremely important. And then there are also some automated tooling you can run. One of the best ones comes from the Docker project and it's Docker Bench Security. If you just run this, it'll tell you like simple things about what you're doing inside of your containers that you could be doing better. And that's where we're at. Yeah, and I, I want to second that. I mean, the, the two aspects of security we talk about, it, and just not to be to confuse the two, one is your basic Linux security. And then the security I think really people are concerned about is the security around images themselves. How do I know that the image that I'm getting is, is the right image? Yeah, Docker has really been advancing the ecosystem, state-of-the-art, I guess. Last fall, they, they, they really strengthened the security story around image management. And as far as I remember, they even added support for uh, YubiKey, which basically, at the, at the extreme end, the ability to plug in a, a USB dongle and have two-factor authentication just to make sure you're getting the right images or, or providing the right identification to a container or something like that. I guess also, for, particularly for enterprises that have compliance concerns, where they need to be able to store provable copies of their architecture. That also comes in handy where you can identify an image, store it, you can sign it, I guess. Well, um, in a sense, Rod, in a sense, I think that the security concern around images is kind of like the same security around, for example, NPM modules on a, on a public registry. So those concerns are... Actually, I think uh, Docker at this point has a pretty good story. I mean, if you're, and of course, you can always run a private registry, so you can run a registry within your own organization, a trusted registry. So similar, similar idea to you know, how you can handle other types of binaries or, or source code that you want to have access to within your organization, just like NPM modules. And a lot of the security talk on Docker that came out, it was a short while ago, but it was about like breaking out of Docker containers. And it depends on where you're attempting to deploy to. If you're de like deploying onto a shared host, for example, then that is something that you absolutely need to be concerned about, right? Is like somebody breaking out of the Docker container and getting access. But if you're deploying to a host that you have, like a VM that's out in the cloud that you have exclusive access to, the security risk at that point isn't at the Docker level, right? You're still focusing in on your Linux security and your basic Linux security best practices at that point. Yeah, that, that is a good point in the sense that, I mean, what is a Docker container? It's really just a very special process on Linux. It's an isolated process taking advantage of all the, the Linux kernel features around isolation today. So it is a different animal from actually a virtual machine. So those concerns, uh, Will, you, know, Will you, you call it right. I mean, you're going to have to understand when it comes to locking down your own particular services within your, your Linux environment. And then there are some huge benefits that you get from using Docker in the security sense, in terms of like security audits, et cetera, et cetera. If like at some point six months from now or a year from now, you realize that there may have been a problem with one of like say the employees on the team or something along those lines, as long as you're generating your images and you have artifacts, at any point you can go back and you can look, do a security audit on the exact environment that was being deployed to production minus the kernel. You can do like full reviews of that code and reproduce an environment that is exactly identical to it. And it gives you that ability, which we've never really had with the exception of virtual machines. But storing 60 gigabyte virtual machine disks around, like that's not really practical. Storing a 400 megabyte Docker image is totally practical. And that's something that we can do and we should definitely be doing. Except we're, we're making them more often now, aren't we? We're, we're making more of them and we've got these layers. Is, is there an emerging best practice around how to clean up the massive mess that you can potentially make with layers and images? 
There's not a very good solution to that right now, unless Tony knows of one. But as of right now, things like that, there you have to do some heuristics. A lot of the tools right now are based on heuristics, which just remove images and kill containers that haven't been touched in a certain amount of time. But for the most part, unless you actually know how your application is being used and you're hand-rolling your own garbage collector for the images, there's really no state-of-the-art that I'm aware of. Yeah, and I think this is an emerging area, so we'll, we'll probably see a lot more coming from Docker, actually, over the next year. Yeah, I suppose at the end of the day, you can always think about just, aside from scavenging processes, just bring up a new machine and redeploy containers to that machine and, and start fresh. One of the things I'm thinking about here is that I hear a surprising number of people turned off Docker because they try using it and they find their hard disk being filled up. And it's difficult. There's no straightforward way to think about that and to think about how to best clean it up. So it's surprising to me that that story hasn't been improved yet. It's, it seems like it's something that should have been taken care of earlier so that the barrier to entry is lower. Absolutely. Uh, that's actually something I run into on a weekly basis for the like node source images. I'm building 400 some odd images and it takes up about 300 gigabytes of hard drive space which is a lot. One of the things that I was able to do to cut that down was to have a shared base image, which saves a lot of time in both building and disk space. So if you're taking this into your company and you're wanting to use this technology, if you have like a, a common operating system and a cop or like common runtime, building those into a image that other images then can inherit and build layers on top of, as opposed to building the full stack every time you shift, is a huge step forward there. And then the other thing I do is I just have a little script that literally kills every image on my hard disk and I start over from scratch. But yeah. that's the luxury of having fast internet. Yeah, and I think Spotify's got a project called Docker GC, basically scripts that, that'll walk through and clean up your garbage as well. That was the heuristic I was referring to. I can't remember the name of the project, but yeah, it was from Spotify. Uh, yeah, they're exactly right. That sounds very interesting. I know for my use, I've, I've found lots of use for the dash dash RM flag, knowing if I don't need to keep something, then upfront saying, don't even bother. <laughs> And Xargs has been my best friend. Xargs and Docker. Yeah, I think I think you become an Xargs expert when you start using Docker. Yeah, pretty much you have to to pipe all the output from one into the RM command of the other. Okay, let's let's move on and hear from our next sponsor. And yet, we're very inspired by the Dreamers. But for certain people, the skills necessary to do portions of their app or product development dream don't come naturally or at all. And that's where we can come in and help out. We've got folks specializing in design, ops, architecture, security, web, mobile, front-end, back-end, admin, project management, you name it. We are builders of things. It doesn't matter where at in the process. We make things for technologists, and we're very good at building things for others. We've loved helping build apps and tools with folks at AT&T, the Creative Artists Agency, the Flatiron School, and Major League Soccer, to name a few. Reach out at contact at andyet.com or visit us at andyet.com for more info or just to say hi. From dream to deploy, we're here to help. And yet, the kind and efficient sort of perfectionists. And part three. So let's end up the show talking about the future of Docker. We'll do a bit of blue sky here and look forward to what Docker themselves, the company, is working on, what the community is working on, what where things are evolving, interesting products, and a bit of you know futurism about 
where we think the future is in maybe five to ten years with regard to, ta- to containers. So maybe, Will, you can start us off here talking about the kinds of things that are coming out of Docker, the company. What are they, what are they prioritizing and what are the products that are, that are new or on the horizon? Oh, one of the most like exciting things that I've been seeing is the same area that Tony is working in, and it's like the Docker Swarm and Docker Machine and like the network flags. Like they're making it like production ready and getting those pushed out the door, and that's huge. And making things pluggable, like I'm super excited about that. One of the things these empower is like transparently scaling applications that were just built for a single Docker instance. They just magically started working in distributed fashions. A good example of this was like Dante. When I built Dante, I built it just to run integration tests on our images at NodeSource. And I had a lot of images, and they took a while to run. And with Docker Swarm, what I was able to do is I was able to provision a swarm with a couple of machines. And my Docker, like Dante, uh, provides a parallel flag so I can build multiple images at once. And it just started transparently working on Docker Swarm without me having to rewrite anything in Dante. I just magically started basically a Docker build farm for our images. And it was a very fantastic and transparent experience. So like all of those and those features that Docker is like pushing in terms of reusability and composability, et cetera, like that's a really exciting place to be. And I'm really excited to see where they're taking that. Do you think there's a theme for what Docker themselves are focusing on? Well, I, I, uh, so yeah, Swarm, and that's obviously a big part of the, the future, the next year. But something that just happened was that was very interesting to me. Uh, announcement that they just made Docker had acquired Unikernel. And what's fascinating about Unikernel is the idea that your, your application, the source code that makes your application, gets compiled into the operating system, basically a custom operating system. It's going to be really interesting to see what Docker plans to do with this in the next year. Yeah, I'm pretty excited to see that as well. Yeah, I was, I was wondering about that as well. I was, I, was, I was questioning whether we should even talk about that, but because Unikernels became something that everyone was talking about maybe a year ago. Is that, do you really think that's somewhere that we're heading here? And, and maybe one of you wants to explain what that even means. Um, Tony, do you want to tell us about what Unikernels are and whether you think that this is a really legitimate future? Okay, so first of all, uh, I'm, I'm actually not, I'm not an expert in this area. I'm excited by the idea that your deployment unit is effectively no more than what it takes to support your application. But no, I, I, I don't really know much more about Unicron than that. I'm, 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 just, I'm excited to see where it goes and see what Docker does with it. The, the fact that they just acquired it tells me that this is going to be important to basically to you know, your containerization strategy in the future. Will, do you have any, any meat to add to that? I, I know absolutely nothing about Unikernels, other than the dissenting <laughs> opinion that Joint just published. So. Oh, of course, Joint's involved in this discussion too. Interesting. And what's the dissenting opinion? I'd, I'd love to hear that. It was something along the lines of when you use a Unikernel and your code gets compiled in, it's all running as ring zero in the kernel. So basically, it's extremely privileged access to the operating system, and it should be considered production ready. But I was only halfway in when we started this talk, so I haven't got to the big finale yet. But that's where I was. Wow, very interesting. I think the philosophy behind unikernels is basically, instead of having a whole system built inside of a container, boiling it down to only exactly what you need to run the service, and that includes trimming out the kernel itself so that it's customized to the application. It's an interesting philosophy, but I, I suspect we're only at the very beginning of even looking at the practicalities of it. Yeah, I totally agree. But it's an area that I have not explored, and we'll wait to see what Docker does. So 
what about some of the other interesting companies out there that are working on products that are maybe maturing or you know are coming yeah. onto the market? One of the ones I find very interesting is Rancher OS, and I've been tracking this for a while. It's an operating system built around the fact that it's just basically the bare minimum necessary to get Docker up and running, and then everything else inside of the operating system is handled through Docker containers. That includes like the CLI prompt that you're given when you first like log in, like load up the operating system. That's running inside of a Docker container. Most of the like operating systems messaging services that's running inside of a Docker container. It's a pretty cool little like project. Or, well, I wouldn't call it a little project. It's pretty cool and massive undertaking that they're tackling. And it seems pretty awesome. And I agree, actually. I think so, too. And the other company that has just been interesting for me to watch is WeWorks with their Weave products. Basically, they make it pretty easy to work with Docker clusters, and they provide a, a nice monitoring solution around your containers. And and any of the companies in this space that make it easier to work with the, the, your container network and provide a good monitoring solution, these are all going to be really important to uh, the, you know, the growth and you know, the adoption and success with basically large-scale distributed environments. So interesting to watch. And Weave is a perfect example. If I remember correctly, they're one of the ones who launched on the plugin system that came with Docker. And like, that's an awesome example of the pluggability of Docker and composability of the Docker tool chain that's like, empowering some really awesome innovation in this space. Yeah, good point. It seems to me that Docker has done a fairly good job at navigating the complexities of building a community around their product and community of companies. So it seems like they found a pretty good spot where they serve as the foundation layer of this thing and you've got companies building on top of it and not actually competing at the lowest level. Does that, does that sound right for what's going on there? I think so. And my opinion is that they've built a business model that doesn't do evil, and it's scalable. It's pretty awesome, <laughs> and people love it. And what about Docker Hub, Will? Tell us about Docker Hub. Can we expect any improvement there? Because last time I looked at it, it was pretty abysmal. Yeah, certainly. The Docker registry has done an awesome job of updating its UI recently. It's actually aesthetically pleasing now, and it's like it's pleasant to look at. There's like a lot of UI improvements that they have put into it, and it's all working out very well. There's still some areas that I'd like to see them improve. One of the main things I'd like to see improved is around the automated build area. One of the like huge things that bothers me about the automated builds is aliasing. You have one Docker file, and you use that to generate two Docker images. Let's say, like in our case at NodeSource, we have the latest version or release of 4, so you'd have that tag 4.x.5, <clears throat> and then you'd have that LTS tag that's attached to that, right? Or the Argon tag that's attached to that. That would trigger and build two separate Docker images, and because of things coming over the network, that generates two separate hashes. So if you pull one image, even though they're the same version of Node, and like at the logical layer we're saying we want to build one image and alias it to two separate tags, you're still generating two separate images that are slightly different. And that's kind of a problem. And the other is just like adding some basic way of doing testing while maintaining your automated build status. All these automated builds, they're awesome and they're nice, but like if we're doing tests on top of it, like what I've been doing with Dante, there's no way to like take that image and get a like Docker Hub seal of approval. There's no way to like test an image, get the Docker Hub seal of approval and like get that out on the registry. You have to basically test the Docker file and the image that's generated from the Docker file, throw that image away and let them rebuild it and hope for the best. So like an area there would be a really good place to improve, in my opinion. Tony, are you using a custom registry or, or does Docker, is Docker Hub something that concerns you? 
I know what you mean about the user interface, but I think it's so much better today. And I, I, I've been pretty happy with their automated build support. And I think it's fine for what it does for the community. And of course, you know, as, a, as an enterprise, you're also still going to want to have to, you know, your own internal registry. So, but Docker Hub is fine. I, I don't see anything really wrong with working with it. Was it that bothered you about it, Rod? I mean, what was the complaint? <laughs> I don't really want to get too much into it, but basically, it, Docker Hub was like a. It, 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 when I was using it, it was like a, a half baked idea where it had half features and it had you know UI terribleness that was that made it really difficult to use. I'm not sure if it's got an API yet, but I know I know Will you were complaining about that every couple of months that the API uh, either is non-existent or not there. Well, and very poorly documented if it is. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Now, one, I guess one of the things that bothers me the most, but I don't, it's not specifically a Docker Hub issue, is I'd, I'd love to see the tag, an improvement to tagging where latest doesn't necessarily mean latest. Just because you have a tag that means latest doesn't actually necessarily mean that you're getting the latest version of something that's been pushed to Docker Hub. So that's a minor gripe of mine. But I agree with that. Then my other like gripe, uh, following down that same trail um, is like the official repositories and how when you push a new version of like for example Node.js to the official repositories it displaces the previously tagged version and it kind of sticks around but the operating system that it's built on is now like unsupported and it's stagnating or going stale and there's no updates happening since underlying operating system. So if you're tracking the latest version of Node at four, or like on the LTS branch or 5 or 10 or 12, you're fine as long as you're tracking those patches, but you're not getting any operating system updates. I think that's an area that we can improve, but not to discredit Docker Hub or any of the work that's being put into this. It's all amazing. These are just like dreamy eye, like things that I would like to see someday off in the distance kind of thing. Oh, you're such big fans that you can't say ill about Docker, can you? Not without putting a disclaimer at the end, no. <laughs> Like, let's talk about the enterprise, and, and this, we'll, we'll round up the discussion here. So, Will, you get good exposure to enterprise adoption. Your work at NodeSource, you get to talk to a lot of companies, and Tony, you're right in the middle of it as well. I'd like to know, what's the status of Docker in the enterprise? Because usually, particularly with longer-running enterprise, things go in a very long cycle, and technologies like Docker are something they put on their radar, but they don't necessarily adopt for five to ten years after they come up, just to see when they've matured. Do either of you have thoughts on what the status of Docker in the enterprise is now and, and what the timeline might be looking like? I'll leave the timeline answer to Tony, but one of the things I've been the most excited about and surprised about is the number of companies approaching us, uh, talking about like some of the node source offerings and blatantly asking us about what our Docker strategy is. Companies you wouldn't expect at this stage in the Docker development to be asking about Docker strategies and like production are asking about these things. So seeing the rate of adoption in the enterprise of Docker, it's a very surprising thing. And it's a technology that's being embraced pretty quickly comparatively to other technologies I've seen embraced in the enterprise. Yeah, you know, I, I, I would hate to guess on a timeline either and, and have a kind of a skewed view here in Silicon Valley. It is probably going to be slow going. Everybody's excited about it. It's on everybody's radar, but it's kind of like the shift to virtualization technology. It didn't happen overnight. At some point, everybody became aware that this is going to be, you know, this is the future and you're going to start doing it. There's still, like you had mentioned, garbage collection. I mean, there's still, you know, lots of things probably that need to be resolved over the next maybe two years before you see massive wide-scale enterprise IT adoption. Yes, exactly, exactly. But that being said... I guess it's also something that creeps in over time in different layers. 
And one of the most important things is in order for your, being an enterprise customer, in order for your company and your industry to benefit from Docker, you don't have to have a Docker in production story. In fact, the Docker in production story, while it's an interesting and like technically challenging thing, talking about earlier with Docker during development and using that for your continuous integration and continuous deployment, things where it's not mission critical, but you can kind of sneak it in and get like huge, huge, like reap huge benefits in the short term. Just standardizing across your entire development team, the versions of tools that you're using and having a nice reference environment to run the tests and before you commit them into your uh, um, source control manager. These things you can take today without investing heavily in Docker and you get huge rewards back out of it. Okay, let's wrap it up now. I think we've we've had really good coverage and uh, it's been great to hear from you too. I know you're both very excited about this and it, it definitely shows. And I think we've, we're going to have a great collection of links in the show notes for people to follow. Actually, one of the links we'll put in there is to the Docker working group for Nodecore. That, that'll be an interesting place. There's a bunch of interesting people there. Not necessarily a ton of work to do, but that doesn't mean that there's not new projects that could be started by that working group, but definitely a great group of people that are worth connecting with if you're interested in Docker. Let's round out with some plugs. So this is a section where we talk about things that we want to plug that are not necessarily even related to technology. Uh, mine are, and, and they're related to Node Core. I'm going to plug two things. One is the Node.js membership repository. So if you go to github.com slash Node.js slash membership, currently while we're recording this, there's actually voting underway for the Node Foundation board for the individual membership seat. So one of uh, there's been about 10 or 12 people nominate for this seat on the board. And this the, the way I'm selling this to people and, and, and viewing it is it's a community representation seat. So onto the board having somebody that represents the views of the community at large. So currently we're having voting on that. By the time this show goes live, we, we may actually have somebody elected. But if you're interested in supporting the foundation, then please sign up to the foundation. You can do it through that, that repository and check out what's going on. The other one I want to plug is the Node.js documentation repo. If you go to github.com slash node.js slash docs, this is a relatively new effort. It's currently, well, as of today, it's not a ratified working group, so it's not official, but it, it will likely be ratified within the next week or two. It's, it's going a lot better than I imagined it would because the momentum around the documentation effort was has sort of stalled, but Chris Dickinson's done a great job at picking that up and there's a great group of people collecting around around there that are interested in focusing on the Node documentation, that's both API documentation and um, tutorials and whatnot, looking at things even like style guides and all that sort of stuff. So go to that if you're interested in Node's documentation. They, will, they would love to have more people involved and you don't have to be expert. In fact, it's probably better if you're not an expert in Node because you come with fresh eyes. So that's my plug. It was a bit long, but Tony, tell us about your plug for today. You know, I really don't have a plug. It's more of a request, podcast request. I'd love to see you uh, get some people and talk about Chakra Core and maybe where we, you know where we can go and Node as far as um, getting Chakra Core adopted or what that means for you know maybe for ECMAScript six, you know ECMAScript support or whatever. What's the future? It sounds like it's very exciting, and would love to hear you get a few people on a podcast to talk about it. On that line, I can point you to a repository on GitHub. If you go to github.com slash node up slash contribute, 
there's a bunch of issues there with suggestions for show topics and that is often the first place that we look to, to for finding new show topics so if anyone listening has suggestions for show topics we would absolutely love to hear what you want to hear on the show so go to that and we'll have a link in the show notes for that will how about you what's your um what's your plug today so my plug, I actually have two. One is the Association of Computing Machinery. It's a professional organization that promotes computer science. If you're on a campus, a college campus, uh, still haven't graduated, look for your local chapter. If there's not one, bring it on. It's a great organization. I've got a lot out of from being in it. And it's helped me a lot in my career. There are local meetup groups, et cetera, et cetera, that are definitely worth looking at. My other one is a shameless self-plug, which is to look at Dante the tool I referenced earlier. I definitely like a couple more eyes on it and helping me kind of figure out where it should fit into an ecosystem if it should fit at all. So yeah, thank you. Thanks you two for joining us today. It's been a really good show and I'm sure people will really enjoy it. Tony and Will, I hope find a spot to have you back again at some point. So let's uh, finish up now. Follow Node Up on Twitter for the latest news about when shows get published. And you can sponsor Node Up and have your product or company listed here. You just have to email NodeUp at gmail.com and uh, you can get some details about how you can sponsor the show. But that's all from us now. So tune in next time for something even more interesting. Bye.